Joining us now from her home in Los Angeles is screenwriter Jane Rusconi to talk about her efforts back in 1991 on Oliver Stone's movie about the Jim Garrison case. All right, Jane, how did you get involved in the making of Oliver Stone's well-known film, JFK? I was walking down the street one day, and I passed a friend on the street who said, I would know that I know this great job for you. You have to call these people. And I did call them, and this was the job. So it was as random as that. Literally. <laughs> Absolutely. You're just working from film to film, and at any given time, you know, half your friends are out of work, and you're just sort of wandering the streets in the day or hanging out in cafes. So um, it was just someone I knew who knew somebody who was working on the film or somebody who was working on the film with somebody who was going to work on the film. Totally random occurrence. And she just thought you'd be qualified because of your you'd had a pretty strong academic background, I guess. No, she probably thought I was qualified because I was out of work right then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know why she thought I was qualified. You know, I could have not taken her seriously or just decided I didn't feel like working right then and not called, but I did call and it was a great experience, so. Having said what I said, I think I should interject, I believe you were a double major, major at Yale, were you Yes. Not? Well, right. yeah. I, I have a brain, yeah. All right. Fair enough. Well, uh, I understand you were somewhat skeptical, as were so many people, um, that there could have been much merit to the case of New Orleans DA Jim Garrison. So my first question is, what, what, was that true? Were you really skeptical in the beginning? Well, I wasn't really skeptical about Garrison. I was skeptical about uh, endorsing the Garrison case wholesale. Okay. Because the Garrison case as a actual, was he right about the assassination of JFK? It's a very open-ended question, because that really wasn't what Garrison was pursuing. Um, you know, Garrison was trying to, he was putting Clay Shaw on trial, trying to link him to David Ferry and Lee Harvey Oswald. In fact, he didn't want to put Shaw on trial. He wanted Ferry, and Ferry killed himself or was killed or something happened, and um, he couldn't try him. So uh, it wasn't the case that he wanted to pursue either. But when you got into the bigger aspects of the case, the where's and why's of the assassination, I think Garrison was a little shoddy in some of his research, and uh, I think his best bet would have been a very narrowly focused case, and it was the broader aspects of it that were not so easy to endorse. Um, but, you know, I, I think the important thing to remember is, had those photos of uh, Ferry and Shaw been seen at the time, Garrison probably would have won. Yeah. He would have proved that connection. He was so close to it, and, and they did know each other. They yeah. had to have. You have the pictures of them together. And the HSCA... We should, we should actually explain for our audience who probably aren't as well-versed the, the, uh, that uh, in the movie that Joe Pesci was the David Ferry character, that uh, Tommy Lee Jones was the, the Clay Shaw character, and the, the HSCA is the House Select Committee on Assassinations. When the House Select Committee went, uh, had the uh, witnesses to the voter registration issues involving Lee Harvey Oswald from a town in Louisiana, Clinton, Louisiana, when they came in, the HSCA concluded that the Clinton witnesses were telling the truth. Yeah. These are people who came in and reported seeing Ferry, Shaw, and Oswald together in that town during the summer of 1963. They believed that the Clinton witnesses were telling the truth and that um, it, since they were telling the truth, it would prove a connection between Ferry, Shaw, and Oswald less than three months before the assassination. So Garrison wasn't far off. Yeah, I asked Zach Sklar last week whether he was sort of gratified that uh, that Garrison, by virtue of the movie, seemed to have been, to a large degree, vindicated as subsequent investigators bore out a lot of the contentions he'd been making. Oh, yeah, yeah, and he made a lot of great connections there just by 
tracking down witnesses, you know, in the New Orleans area that the uh, Warren Commission had overlooked for one reason or another. Um, yeah. So that was important. The connections, the connection of um, the building at 544 Camp Street, which was the building that Oswald ran his Fair Play for Cuba committee out of when he was in New Orleans, and that former FBI agent uh, Guy Bannister ran his private detective agency out of. Um, Guy Bannister was a rabid, rabid, rabid anti-Castro activist, and the idea that he could be running letting the Fair Play for Cuba committee run out of his office was kind of odd, but yeah. uh, the Warren Commission never picked any of that up. Inspired by your movie, I did some did some reading, and uh, and they, it's interesting that the FBI was talking to Bannister the the day Oswald was shot. I mean, they were clearly involved in, in tracing down the leads to this, but it, you just, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find evidence of that when you read the Warren volumes. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a little note about Ferry that doesn't seem to come from David Ferry himself, but somebody who was impersonating him in Dallas that weekend. And there was another report that uh, FBI agents in Dallas were talking about Ferry, and somebody from NBC News overheard them talking about Ferry and went and told his crew to find out who this Ferry guy is. So these were names that were, were coming up right that weekend. Sure. Um, you know, who did Oswald know? And it was known that Oswald knew these people. But no, they never went further on that. They were too interested in, in what Oswald did in grade school. Now, uh, the attacks on the movie began uh, early. They were using, a, I guess, a, a pilfered early version of the script, which wasn't even the final one that was shot. Yes. Uh, people in the film, how were they reacting? Was that seen as a harbinger of things to come? It was annoying on one hand, and on the other hand, it was publicity. Yeah. <laughs> You're building a profile for your movie before it's even finished shooting. I think the first attacks came on the movie came before we'd even shot any footage at all. And the, the script had gone out in your standard uh, Hollywood-style secrecy where you have stamped copies and you you know do everything you can not to disseminate it widely. You know, you know who has what numbered script. Yeah. But, I mean, it's hard to keep control of those things, really. I mean, everybody has a Xerox machine and, it, you know, you leave this with someone overnight and somebody wants to read it. And, you know, things get passed around. So, um, I, I think Harold Weisberg got a copy early. And that was a problem. Um, but it's not hard to get a script. If you want a script of something, you, there's always a way to get it. It's even easier now um, with the Internet. Yeah. But um, it, it was a little tough when you're working on a movie and people are reading drafts that have long been made obsolete and criticizing them. And, you know, and the, you're, you're focused on trying to make a good movie. Yeah. So you have to kind of ignore that and uh, keep the work with the profile you know we we you know we we knew we were going in for controversy and we yeah. were, we we were happy to to stir the the debate you know yeah. we we got a chance to talk about things that we wanted to talk about so well you 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 did in fact make a good movie yeah and uh, JFK the book of the film uh the opening page Oliver Stone's research notes compiled by Jane Rusconi you basically supplied the supporting evidence for almost every scene that was shot um could you could you share a few more the more interesting bits of research that are there. You've mentioned the one about Ferry, uh, his name being bandied about in Dallas uh, on the weekend of the assassination. Uh, could you talk a bit about Hugh Ainsworth and his interesting dream? This is a, a favorite of mine. Oh, that came from the, the, the Jim Kirkwood book. Garrison's case sort of fell apart. He had this one witness, this very <laughs> odd guy, who claimed he had been at a party with Ferry and, and Oswald. And there seemed to be a good case that he had, in fact, been to a party with Perry and Oswald. A reporter named Hugh Ainsworth said he, he had a dream 
that um, <laughs> that this particular witness um, was a flaky guy, and he tipped off uh, the defense and had them do some investigations on him, and of course they found out that he was in fact a nut. Um, but uh-huh. I did hear from people that you could tell this guy was a nut from 100 yards away. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the sort of the sad part is, what he was actually saying, that he had met um, Perry, and Shaw, oh, Perry and Shaw at a party, did seem to be true. But, yeah. you know, when you have a guy talking about fingerprinting his own daughter and all kinds of bizarre scenarios, yes. you, you tend not to take him as a credible witness. Well, I, I, I love the fact that in Garrison's book, On the Trail of the Assassins, which was one of the two books the movie's based on, uh, he describes his dismay when the defense attorney suddenly asks this key witness, is it true that you fingerprinted your daughter before she went off to college? And the guy responds, yes, I did. And uh, why did you do that? To make sure the daughter I got back was the same one I sent off. Now, you, you just have to wonder about a guy whose intuition from a dream directs the defense team to ask a probing, specific question like that. Yes. Except, except remember, this is 19, what year is this, 1969? Uh, yeah. And probably a lot of parents weren't sure they were getting the same kid back <laughs> after their kids went off to college. <laughs> Might have been a bad, not a bad idea. No, the thing about that in historical context, they go out, a clean-cut kid, come back, long hair, you know, whatever else. So you still want, so you wonder. Another note you had was about um, uh, a military intelligence uh, uh, officer, James Powell, who just happened to be in Dealey Plaza. Yeah, just happened to be there. No With explanation. He took some pictures of the buildings, too. Uh-huh. Didn't take any pictures of the people or the president mm-hmm. or anything that was going on. Mm-hmm. Just some pictures of the buildings. Right. And just sort of the upper windows of the buildings. Yeah, the southeast but, corner of the Texas School Book Depository, as I recall. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and that's, I think, the, there's only one picture. And nobody just goes and takes one picture of something insignificant. So mm-hmm. there had to have been more that haven't been released. And it's not clear what he was doing there that day. In, in the movie, uh, Zach Sklar mentioned uh, how, how wonderful it was to have people like Ed Asner and Jack Lemmon show up and, and be willing to work for scale just to be a part of, of the movie that you guys are putting together. My favorite is John Candy's Dean Andrews. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you, you talk about Candy and Andrews? Well, Candy was a great actor. I don't know if people realize that because he was Uncle Buck or whatever comic, but Dean uh, Andrews, I mean, John Candy was really a fine actor, and his performance is a really great performance. And we fought very hard to keep that in the movie. That was the one kind of expendable part that we could have cut to make the movie just a little bit shorter, but Oliver really wanted it in there. Um, yeah. But the character, Dean Andrews, um, no one could have written that character. He went in and talked to the Warren Commission. <laughs> using hipster, I guess hipster New Orleans language, and Dean Andrews weighed about 350 pounds or something. I guess, yeah, big and, man. And uh, his testimony to the Warren Commission is absolutely hilarious, worth reading just, just because it's really, really, really funny. I, I agree. But he also said a lot of stuff of great significance that the Warren Commission never picked up on. And it's interesting because they had that right there in front of, front of them, and they, they weren't interested in learning more about Oswald you know, in ways that mattered. They never did find out what Dean Andrews' relationship with him was. Yeah, and he was, of course, a key to the whole uh, mysterious uh, Clay Bertrand, Clay Shaw, which the Tommy Lee Jones character plays. Yes, yeah. yes, and, and he, he obviously, I mean, you know, you're talking a small town. <laughs> to claim that they didn't know each other, that he once saw him across a room or whatever he was saying, that just wasn't true. I think also, though, on Dean Andrews' part, uh, had he been testifying against Shaw in any kind of really public way, it would have hurt him because Shaw was a very prominent citizen, and again, you're talking about a very small town. 
Now, in the movie, one of the more uh, intriguing moments comes when Garrison meets this character called X. Now, there was a lot of criticism that the Garrison really didn't meet a man uh, named X or anything, really a person precisely like that. But um, he took a little liberty using a composite based largely upon Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a bit about uh, Colonel Prouty? Yeah, well, when you say that, that Garrison never met an X, Garrison met many Xs. Garrison met a lot of people who knew a lot of information about things and sort of helped him yeah. understand the bigger workings of the government. Um, Fletcher Prouty worked in the Joint Chiefs of Staff's office. He's a retired Air Force colonel. He sort of understood the bigger picture of the Kennedy assassination where it branched out to in different areas of, of how the government was working and where the government was working right then. I recommend his book, his book, The Secret Team, I think is just a tremendously good book. Yeah, and I mean, look what's going on today. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very Prouty-esque in some of his descriptions about the cloak and dagger things that, uh, that went on. Oh, sure. And yeah. go on. Yeah. But we, we wanted to find a way to bring the bigger picture into the story. Not just what was happening in New Orleans, but that sort of realization of, you know, what's going on in this country, which was something that people were experiencing in the late 60s. Just ways of talking about these things. It also um, <laughs> also got Donald Sutherland in the movie, and he was great. He yeah. was so good. He, he got through. To do those two scenes he did, to say all that stuff, yeah. and to make it so that you could understand it, and you believed that he understood it all, and just, it was great. I love that. I love that stuff. Those scenes are great. Now, after the film comes out, um, David Bellin, com- yeah. counsel for the Warren Commission, that actually comes out, takes an ad in Variety to lobby against JFK winning the Oscar, and indeed it loses out to uh, to Silence of the Lambs, which I think I think is clearly an inferior movie. Definitely, definitely, from every aspect. Anthony Hopkins is great in Silence of the Lambs. There's a great performance there. But when you look at JFK, look at the cinematography and the editing and just... It's a very daring, bold, visual, you know, there, there's so much there. It's so rich. It's so cinematic in a way that um, I don't think there was any other movie quite like that that year. You guys used like 15 different types of film stock, I think, didn't oh, you? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that's, that's ambitious, you know. That's just hard. It takes time. And that's, you know, even when you're someone at the top of his game, as Oliver was then, Reaching out to do that is, is a big deal, you know? That, that's about caring. It's passion for your work, and that, that's a great thing. You know, that's something that should always be rewarded. I think Silence of the Lambs was a fairly standard <laughs> yeah. standard movie. Not not quite the same achievement. Not, but, not in my opinion, either. Yeah. In the controversy that followed the movie, you assisted Oliver Stone as he went around defending uh, the film. I imagine it was quite gratifying to have something really highly unusual take place in the wake of the film, was that a special government panel was created the Assassination Records Review Board, in relation to the fact that the last frame of the movie is, explains to the public that a lot of these records have been sealed for years, and the public was outraged. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a great thing. We went around, we had these uh, Free the Files buttons made up, yeah. and uh, we all wore them and handed them out, and people were really into it, because it didn't make any sense that all those things were still classified. It gives people a sense of... of their history to know these things so you know making people feel like yeah you know a movie can make a difference it can get truth out that was great that was really great because that, that's a big achievement that's something where you're helping people you know, particularly in the in the JFK research community who've been working for years you know and all of a sudden you have this opportunity to, to really make a big difference to try and really push things you know give them a big push uh, and I hope we did that well I think you did I don't mind saying that if, if I hadn't have seen that movie and if probably you hadn't been a research assistant that made it 
the quality picture that it was, I wouldn't have gone out and gotten mad, and I probably wouldn't be on the radio right now. We wouldn't be talking to this audience. Is that a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, well, one thing about our movie is you'll see when, you know, when they're talking to young filmmakers, or you see this in a lot of foreign filmmakers, um, when they ask what movie made them want to be a filmmaker, and you'll see JFK listed. And I think that it did have an impact, not just about what it was about, but just that you could you could create something that was just a bold visual statement and so full of information and that got people really energized watching it. Because you don't just watch that movie and start looking at your watch. You know, you get you get into it. It really takes you in. And that right there, that we could make a movie that was so full of facts and dates and numbers and statistics and all this minutia from different areas of history, and people loved it. They didn't like the personal stuff with Garrison and his wife. They were like, why is that in your movie? Well, it was in the movie because the studio wanted it there. That's why it was there. The studio was afraid that people wouldn't like what they thought was the drier part of the movie. Right. The history lesson. People ate up the history lesson and they wanted more. Yeah, I I had to pee for the last 35 minutes and I would not budge out of my seat. (laughs) (laughs) But I still recommend the director's cut that adds 18 more minutes back in because I think it really rounds out a lot of scenes that should never have been cut. Oh, yeah. Gives you a lot of the details and names and places that probably, you know, that really need to be there to round out the texture. Once you go over three hours in a movie, you're looking at, like, reduced numbers of screening times. There's a lot of business reasons for that, which I totally agree with. But it is tough when you have all the stuff that we had. I mean, we had so much to use. So, yeah, we had a lot to choose from, and and things did have to get cut. Well, Zach Sklar said that it's now, uh, I guess the director's cut is now out on DVD, and I, uh, again, would recommend it highly to anyone who who likes film and likes history. Jane Rusconi, thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and if you'll stay tuned after this short break, we'll return with a very interesting guest, Dr. Gary Aguilar.